What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. This is just a reminder that you can go over to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain every Wednesday evening at around 8 o'clock, and you can listen to us live, and you can actually also donate to us if you'd like. It does help support the channel, keep things running. Croft, how are you, sir? I am fine and dandy, as fine and dandy as one can be in such mm. in unprecedented times. <laughs> well, I, I think, when, when do they become precedented? I mean, it's been what nine and a half months that this thing's been sticking around is it the yeah. year mark yeah i mean it's a fair point um <laughs> you know like uh yeah it's, it's kind of unprecedented you know in the sense that like it's unprecedented for us like we haven't had we've actually been doing quite well in the state fair. uh against the uh the unspecified virus of unknown origin um <laughs> it's um yeah it's it's actually we actually had a few cases over the years they've kind of gone away yeah, um, that's fair. So interestingly, I, I um, my sister this week was supposed to fly to Queensland. Mm. Overseas people, Queensland is a state of Australia. For those who, for Americans, Australia is a country in the Southern Hemisphere, just to the sort of the left of New, you know, the left of New Zealand. So you find it on the map. Um, and uh, she had to cancel her holiday because the state is closed or Brisbane is closed. Um, it's a little bit like you know you have that, that line in um you ever seen uh, National Lampoon's Vacation where they roll up at the uh, uh, Wally World he goes and he says they don't close the state of Florida and I'm like ah yeah <laughs> sure about that um but so Michelle Queensland is closed to us Victorians so she had the reaching re- re- holiday plans and I have a trip planned next month to to South Australia and the Northern Territory yeah um, and it sort of made me realise that like. Yeah, under normal circumstances, you, you travel domestically. It's pretty low stress, right? I mean, you know. Um, normally, yeah. But now it's like you could land up somewhere, and if shit goes sideways while you're there, you may not be able to get home. And it's like the Soviet Union is like Papa's players. You know, it's, it's not not even it. sort of like you. There's not even the guarantee that you're going to be able to actually get your flight. It's like you have to get flight insurance just in case COVID comes along and ah, get a case of COVID or something. No travel insurance policies cover COVID. It's it's so nuts. I was looking at one going, I should get my travel insurance so I can cover my trip. You can't get a travel insurance policy in this country that will cover you for COVID-related cancellations or problems. Wow. So you're basically, it's a waste of money, essentially, like if it's COVID, yeah. um, you're worried about it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, you're hiring a car maybe, but like um, my flight home from Darwin to Melbourne transits via Sydney, quite a challenge to find out what you have to do. Whether I'm allowed back into the state, yeah, trans- transiting through Sydney. But what I learned is, yes, I am. But technically, <laughs> um, to enter our state, the state that uh, your beloved producers broadcast from on a weekly basis, you need a permit. No matter which part of the country you're coming from, even if it's not one of the parts of the country that's got COVID problems right now, you can't come back into the state right now without a permit. It's it's just it's so just, weird. I it's think that so counts weird. as unprecedented, really, considering this is a federated country and, you know, hard borders haven't existed in this country since the 19th century. Um, that's <laughs> It's been a while, in other words. So it's it's kind of weird. Like you sort of go, this trip's kind of risky. You know, it's a little bit risky in the sense that if I end up in Darwin and all of a sudden there's an outbreak of cases in the Northern Territory, yeah, getting back to Victoria could be an interesting challenge. A number of people from this state have been stuck in other states when they closed the borders. So uh, I'm sure, I mean, 
I agree with closing the borders, by the way. Otherwise, you can have like the United States. Sorry, American friends. You're not exactly the world-leading example on this one. Yeah. We won't, we won't go into particular details about what's happening in the U.S. at the moment because that's... Are you talking about the pandemic in general? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They've got nothing else going on right now. It's fine. There's it's fine. not much else going on. Yeah, there. But so the pandemic, you could be doing better. But um, we, I think we've got a pretty top show for you this week. Yeah, um, I think... Ladies and gentlemen, we uh, we've had we've been on quite an interesting run recently. Last week we talked about the Michelle Rodriguez feature film debut, Girl Fight, which was released in two thousand. And um, whilst it does feel very kind of dated um, in its kind of aesthetic and style, we still both really loved it and really enjoyed the. The, particularly the performance of Michelle every time she was on screen. But we um, decided to follow on um, her trainer, uh, Jamie Torelli, was in the much-lauded cult and um, fully-fledged classic, shall we say, the Brian De Palma-directed Carlito's Way. So that is our movie for Chain Movies this week. Um, we didn't get a chance last week because we both were talking about Disney's uh, Pixar's Soul and Wonder Woman 84, but I will be talking about my experiences with Twin Peaks. Travis is going to touch on Totally Under Control, as well as Mandalorian Season 2, which he has recently just finished. So, should we get straight straight into it? Uh, Carly Knows Way, uh, this is George's first time seeing this film, Um, so that's a bit exciting. Uh, This is another point, actually, following on from last week. We did have um one of our chat uh someone in the chat asking if you can donate which crazy if you really want to you can you just go over to our twitch channel go into the about section and there's a little donate button where you can donate via paypal um you're welcome to put whatever you want in there you don't have to but anyone who wants to sure go for it (laughs) i'm not gonna say no um very strange um (laughs) So Carly This Way was uh, released in 1993, as you noted. He's directed by the, I wouldn't say the great Brian De Palma, but the memorable Brian De Palma. He's done some interesting stuff over the years. Star quite a cast. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Al Pacino as Carlito, Sean Penn as his lawyer, Kleinfeld, um, Penelope Ann Miller, who was kind of memorable in the 90s as Gail. Yeah. No, she kind of, she saw her name pop up in the credits. I'm like, I remember her. She was doing stuff, but then just... Uh, John Leguizamo as Benny mm-hmm. Blanco, Louis Guzman uh, in there as well, a very young Viggo Mortensen in a small role, um, mm-hmm. quite quite the cast, written by um, David Cope, or Coep, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce his name, yeah. um, pretty well-known guy, wrote a couple of films you might have heard of, Jurassic yeah. Park, Spider-Man, Mission yeah. Impossible, uh, kind of a well-known guy. He's the screenwriter who wrote this this film. Um, this is another gangster film for Brian De Palma. Probably one of his best known works is the film Scarface from the mm-hmm. 80s, starring also Al Pacino as a Puerto Rican gangster. Um, which and his other gangster movie, The Untouchables. Very much so. But maybe a different tone to this one. This, um, yeah. Though uh, that one also ended in a train station. So. Yeah. um that's the thing for trains and train stations because i mean it he even directed mission impossible one which has got a big finale on a train (laughs) 
That said, apparently he wanted to film the finale of this at the World Trade Center. What a memorable ending that would be now, considering what happened afterwards. But there yeah. was a there was a bombing there in 1993, so that kind of ruled that out at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he went back to the train station again. Well, you know, stick with what you know, I say. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I've seen this before. What mm-hmm. did you think of it? I didn't know quite what what Pacino I was going to get going into this because this is one of those classic everyone who considers considers themselves a Pacino fan or anything they'll bring up Carlito's way um I've got a very on and off admiration for Sean Penn so usually I'll go into any movie that is in has him in it with a lot of trepidation. I wasn't sure if this was going to be kind of Scarface over the top Pacino or the more reserved Godfather Part 1 Pacino or somewhere bizarrely in the middle with um, uh, Heat, something like that. And I was really surprised. I really appreciated the the role um, of Carlito and Pacino's portrayal of it and the way that they actually the narrative of the story leads itself um the fact that it is as seems to be quite a a trademark of brian de palma he kind of in the opening five minutes opening credits almost of a number of his movies he kind of tells you everything you need to know about the movie and it's like yep this is if you pay attention there will be no surprises in this movie and it kind of speaks to a certain level of, I guess, confidence in his in his product. I suppose that it it's not about surprise or suspense per se. It's about the quality of what is on on screen. And for me, this is a really good, really strong movie. I really liked the the way that Pacino played Carlito, being he's. Al Pacino has always got this kind of energy bubbling under that he always he's kind of parodied to the point of death now of exploding randomly. But he never really does that except maybe two or three instances in this where his character, where he seems to genuinely heartfeltedly be trying to actually change his life for the better. And it's just every time it's sort of like, you know even Pacino himself as an actor says the line perfectly every time I think I'm out they pull me back in from Godfather part three and that is perfectly on display here he's been off the streets for five years he's back he wants to not have to go to prison anymore so he's trying to just be honorable respectful to the the new people that have taken over the streets in his absence um and build a normal life and he, he comes across as actually quite a sympathetic character. And you kind of, that the code that he lives by and tries to kind of lead others into, you want to believe that he can make it, or at least I did. And the, every time shit goes down, it's like, fuck, that is just such bad luck. You don't feel like, oh, he's making a bad choice. It's just you have been put in a fucking horrible situation. The very first time when his, uh, I think his nephew is going off to, to do a, a money drop and a pickup and shit hits the fan. And so like, yeah, to be fair, if I was an experienced 
assassin and criminal like um he says that like he's not (laughs) huh (laughs) he says that like he's not no there's no evidence i make sure of it (laughs) (laughs) anyway you're you're right he sort of you were saying so he goes along with the um is his his nephew's uh, deal and shit goes sideways yeah and the fact that it's like he starts especially at the end he's talking about i've got five hours i'm playing every angle in my head and you can see him doing that in this early encounter early early fuck up scenario he starts trying to set up this trick shot on the table so that he's got a better view of the rest of the room and stuff like that and he he's a really smart character and you can't help but feel for him over the course of it you don't particularly like him but you can understand and appreciate and i felt like i could just go for the ride and get into his headspace in a way that quite often al pacino's performances don't let you because they're so usually so volatile and expressive for me it feels like you are there to watch you are not there to uh participate and i felt like this he was allowing you to actually get into the the feeling of Carlito. So I really, really appreciate that. One thing I sort of, it does ca- to carry on with something you said there is you sort of, he sort of ends up in some bad situations, which really aren't his sort of fault. Mm. But um, I kind of felt that was one of the themes of a film mm. was that he was sort of washed along on this tide of, you know, of potentially where he came from in a way. And, and the Penelope Ann Miller sort of, uh, Gail, her character Gail says it at one point in time, you know, like, your, you know, um, dedication to this ancient religion hasn't turned up with the Death Star. No, it's the wrong film. Um, um, <laughs> but um, she sort of notes it, like your your dedication to the, you know, the, the, the law of a street, the rules of a street. Mm. You know, like you don't you don't tell on anyone. You don't you don't rat yada yada yada. That hasn't bought you anything. Hasn't got you anywhere. It's got you to here, and it's gonna continue to take you. And I'm gonna end up. Yeah taking you to the emergency room at three in the morning, blah, 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 crying. Um, and she calls it right because that's pretty much exactly how it goes. But yeah. and, and to Carlito, I guess he's in his defense, he's sort of carried along on this this tide, but he can't seem to resist. Yeah, he, so doesn't, he doesn't really fight too hard against it. I guess it's, that's fair um, because uh, he has come from where he's come from. He was set on it. Someone said him, it was like a, someone wound him up, like a wind-up toy. You know, uh, how old is he? 40, 50? Uh, 40, 50 years ago. And just you can't, you know, change direction at that point in time. It's it's a really big ask. This is all he knows. This is all he's ever known. And he's sort of carried forward on that tide of, of tradition and, you know, the code of a street and not knowing a different way of doing things. And despite doing his best, it's a bit like trying to swim – you know, um, you're getting caught in a rip. You know, you can try really hard, but if you don't know exactly what you're doing, it's going to carry you out to sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, what happens to to Carlito in this film, unfortunately. As you say, he's a fairly sympathetic character here. He's not, he's, he's you know, he's trying to go straight. He's trying to live a better life. He kind of wants to get away with, with Gail and, you know, and have be a father and so on and so forth. So you, you have quite a bit of empathy for his character. Uh, let's go for some of the other characters in the film. I think he, he and Gail are definitely the only ones who approach likability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 
going into Sean Penn, the character of Kleinfeld, who is he straight off the bat, he looks dodgy as fuck. He and does. I you, you kind of look at it and just go, All right, um why Carlito, why are you friends with this guy? How did you I'm curious as to how they became friends and things like that. And it's like why oh it's it's like their their relationship is the ultimate um nice abusive relationship it's you can see uh kleinfeld just being constantly going down this dark path and very clearly choosing it like it's no surprise when he reveals that he did steal the million dollars um and it's not really any surprise that he made video uh audio tapes of his clients and shit it's like yeah and and carlito is kind of obvious to it but he chooses to have that blind eye of but i owe him he's my friend it's like, oh wow okay and um i think it's even this is what i'm sort of talking about he's kind of stuck right i mean yeah. he's having his been bothered with evidence that his friend has betrayed him um, but he is stuck in that code of the street. The way he is being raised, and the way he's the code which he's lived his life by, he doesn't really have a lot of wiggle. It feels like, as a character, you can sort of see he doesn't feel like he has the authority, the personal agency to step outside the, those those lines that he's painted around his life. In in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like Carlito, the character of Carlito, is almost like a Shakespearean hero destined for failure where no matter what he does it, the outcome would always be the same and it is he is that tragic character um it's it, it, i think i don't know i haven't read the books because apparently this is based off of two books um by edwin torres carlito's way and after hours but um the the way that we are shown carlito how he is portrayed by pacino how he is um brought along through the narrative thanks to brian de palma there there is that sense of um inescapable destiny to to the character that adds to the sympathetic side and the um the emotional connection that you have with the character you know this is a fairly different sort of performance from pacino um and if you talk about his iconic performances, interestingly, he won the Oscar for Scent of a Woman, and I don't know that I would consider that one of his iconic performances because I don't oh. think I've ever seen that film and no one talks about that film anymore. It was like one of those consolation Oscars. They're yeah. like, uh, we should have given him one for Serpico or Dog Day Afternoon but or Godfather, yeah. but like, oh, well, we kind of fucked that up. So yeah, <laughs> yeah have one now. It's like, yeah. well, you know, they, they happen, right? Um uh, so, but uh, if you talk about, like, as he sort of said, The Godfather, Scarface, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, um, those are heat, I would say, I think it's a fairly iconic role for his. Mm -hmm. He, I think, is actually in any of those other films played a character like this one who has kind of is sort of a quiet dignity about him mm. and a quiet determination to get out of a situation that he's in. Whereas you're, the others, you sort of know, he kind of plays... Al Pacino, yeah, uh, yeah. He sort of he's as you sort of said over the top almost. When you look mm -hmm. at it, I mean, you compare this to Scarface, which are probably is maybe the most natural. 
comparison, which is almost parody of, of, of you know, it's, it's almost so over the top. It's, 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 it's a joke, but yeah, uh, I think that suffers from Godfather effect in a sense. Again, that's a film that's had the piss taken out of it so many years now that it's kind of hard to take the original performance seriously, though at the time it was probably fine. Mm. I think... Um, uh, it, it, sorry. I was just going to say, I think... Um, uh, with with the character of Carlito versus kind of all the other characters that he's had, that as an audience member, I kind of feel like, all right, I have a I have a very good understanding of what his personal morals and rules are, and I feel like I could have some form of a relationship with this guy as long as I stick to those rules. He's not if if I am sticking to his rules, he's not gonna fucking kill me. Whereas um, most of his other characters have got this real unhinged element to them, whether he's a criminal or a cop, there's that kind of always that breaking point in his character that's sort of like, like I wouldn't want to be friends with his character from Heat, even though he's kind of a good guy. Um, but he's kind of a kind of a you know an asshole at the same time. Horrible person. It's kind um, of a horrible person you probably want working for you in a way if you weren't working for the police because he wouldn't take the backward step when yeah. facing it. You honestly could almost say De Niro's character in Heat had more in common with Carlito than yeah. Than, yeah. than Pacino's character. I mean, you can kind of see the, the – that kind of works for me. I can yeah. sort of quiet yeah. stoicism that. that those two the guys had. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to call it – you mentioned that Sean Penn in this film, you sort of said you had a an up-and-down relationship with Sean Penn as an actor. I think for the most part – he he's one of the most talented actors of his generation. Mm. I don't know. I'm kind of on the same page as you. And I don't know how often he's actually brought that to the table. Mm. I mean, when you see a film like Mystic River, which he won his Oscar for, mm-hmm. or Milk, which he won his other Oscar for, mm. I think those films are... Uh, I, I always thought, well, in fairness, I haven't seen them in a while, but I really liked them when they came out. Mm. Um, but I don't... It was something like The Game. I thought he was really good in The Game, but... Uh, yeah, film or U-turn, which is an, uh, an Oliver Stone film, uh, Dead Man Walking, of course. So, but the same for every one of those. There are a lot of self-indulgent crap yeah. <laughs> around it. You sort of look at the films he's in, and you're like, I've never heard of any of these films. Um, so, I, I feel he's a fair, he's a very talented guy, and I think this is actually one of his better roles. I mean, he really yeah. inhabits that character of Kleinfeld. He's repugnant. He is repellent. Oh, As he yeah. said, it, it, apparently it was Penn's idea that he had a receding hairline. Um, he just uh, exudes sleaze, mm. which I think is probably what, again, not having read the book, is what the character was about here. Yeah. Um, and he, he, sort of, he sort of personifies this sleazy, you know, mob lawyer. Um, and I, I thought it was wonderful in this. And he sort of descent into sort of drug owls, gangsterism that he gets to at the, at the end of a film. Um, it, it's apparently he did the film because he wanted to act opposite uh, Pacino, um, and I but thought he had that opportunity. <laughs> well, I mean, it would be intimidating as an actor, I would imagine. Like, you know, yeah. you're like, um, I've never been that good at anything, so it's hard to say. But I used to play, used to play field hockey when I was a teenager, and occasionally I, I played field hockey for a little while for my university. And the university had some very good players playing for their teams, and occasionally in scratch matches. To use the American term, practice matches, um, you know, with the, the squads of people who are getting, te- you know, in the senior teams ahead of me down the bottom, 
you you would end up standing next to for five minutes someone who potentially could be in a conversation could be could be in a conversation to play for australia at some point yeah that kind of thing um and you'd be like holy fucking shit that's that dude right um who i saw on tv um playing you know uh, you know in commonwealth games or whatever um so i can only imagine if you're if you're you'd have to be very confident in your own abilities to stand opposite someone of that who is that good at what they do and not be intimidated and go i can go blow for blow with this guy or um you know at the very least i want to see what i can do i want to see if this person brings out the best of me and yeah. i think pacino did here well i mean I Thinking of the movies that Pacino was just coming off of in leading up to this, um, in 1990, he did Dick Tracy, then was Godfather Part 3, Frankie and Johnny, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which is awesome, uh, Scent of a Woman, Carlito's Waste, and then two years later, he was in Heat. So it was a bit of an odd time for Pacino, consider when, especially when you think back on those movies. They're not like Godfather Part Three is not well remembered. Dick Tracy has got a mm. cult following now, but it wasn't a success then. Um, and then the movie um, going back to 1983 with Scarface. The rest of them are ones that I've not heard of. The local. I think though, Frankie and Johnny was a big hit at the time. Um, yeah. Not well remembered now. Glenn Gary Glenn Ross was a very hip film to be in, mm. uh, and then he won his Oscar for Scent of a Woman. Mm. So, I mean, as I said, I don't think that's well remembered. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I sure. I mean, he had a big rep by that point in time. I mean, yeah. she still has a reputation now, despite some of the garbage he's been involved in in the last twenty years. He was in Gilly, right? Um, uh, Jack and Jill. Yeah. Um, he's been in some horrible shit. Yeah. Um, and he has taken some some of that sheen off his legacy as a result. But he's still a name when you see. Al Pacino in, I thought he was fantastic in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Even though he was at a five-minute role, it was fantastic to see him doing a Tarantino film eventually. But uh, And people said he was pretty good in The Irishman. I still haven't got around to seeing that. That's very um, It's the main thing. I'm like, do I really want to invest four hours in this thing? Yeah. Um, but does, the, the Irishman leads on to an interesting point. So this film does feel like a film that, that um, Scorsese might have done. Yeah. It kind of feels like the dollar store version of a film that Scorsese would have done. That's maybe a little bit harsh. but yeah, it's a bit harsh, but I, I see the point. I don't think this film is well-remembered either. We talked about Scent of a Woman. No one remembers that, despite the fact Pacino won his Oscar for it. Mm. I don't think people remember Carlito's Way. I mean, I think it's kind of a people who were around old enough, old farts like me, who remember when it came out, because it got a lot of a lot of kudos at the time. Mm. Um and, and, you know, Pacino's performance rightly was, was lauded, despite the fact he didn't get an Oscar nod for this. Um, but I don't think it's a film that people talk about. We're talking gangster films. Mm. You know, in conversation about gangster films, what do people talk about? The Godfather, it's probably Scarface, uh, Goodfellas, mm -hmm. you know, uh, The Pardon. Yeah. Uh, maybe if you chuck in Casino, we're very a little bit edgy, um, yeah. which I think is a great film, by the way. Um, you know, I, 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 you don't think people were talking about Carlito's way in that conversation anymore. Despite the fact it probably deserves to be. Uh, I feel like this is maybe a bit of a forgotten classic. Mm. I'm just got, just done a quick Google search on best gangster movies. And according to Time Out, um, 
just the other day. The 50 best gangster movies of all time. Um, let's see if we can skip through. So we've got a lot here. They've got Casino ranked at 38, which just seems very low to me. No Country for Old Men at 36. Wow, there's... Wow, they've, they've got some really interesting choices here. Um, number 18, A History of Violence, which is a fantastic movie. Yeah, good film. Um, I wouldn't have thought of it as a gangster film. Um, it kind of is, but at the same kind time, of, it's yeah. not entirely. Their number one is The Godfather. Number two is The Killing from 1956. Number three is Reservoir Dogs. Number four is Goodfellas. Number five is Mean Streets. Six, Bonnie and Clyde. Seven, Godfather Part Two. Eight, Miller's Crossing. Nine, Once Upon a Time in America. And ten, Sexy Beast. It's a weird collection that they've got there. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of those I may not have... Um... Uh, some of those I may not have actually thought. I didn't think of gang. I would have thought of Reservoir Dogs really as a gangster film, but yeah. I can see how an, you argue it might be. But yeah. I think we're talking classic mm. gangster movies, you know, like mob movies, yeah, rather than films just happen to be having gangsters in them. Mm. Um, I, I don't think you know, departed. I mean, the Scorsese films, you know, you're he's kind of the godfather of no pun intended, um, gangster <laughs> films. <laughs> You know, uh, and I don't, I just, I mean, I just, I, I please tell if there's anybody, if someone wants to disagree with me, please do. Um, I, I just don't feel like it's in the conversation anymore. Yeah. I don't think you hear people talk about Carlito's way anymore. Yeah. Um, probably the most memorable line from the film for me was when Carlito comes out of the, after his cousin has been killed, he's hiding in the bathroom, mm. getting his, reloading his gun, and he comes back out and he goes, Here comes the pain. Um, yeah. And the main reason I remember that line is because it's in a Slipknot song. Oh, shit, it is. Mm. So I'm like, why do I know that line? Oh, it's in a Slipknot <laughs> um, And that's probably not what the filmmaker intended. <laughs> so uh, it's, it, that's, in that way, is this an actual me having a go at the film? Mm. I think the film is fine. It has a 7.9 on IMDb, has a 65 meta score, which I think is low. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of reviews here which people didn't like it um, and sort of say, sort of be saying it like, oh, it doesn't quite measure up to Scarface. I've never been a big fan of Scarface, so didn't do anything for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, mean, I can see that. I can sort of see this. Is, it was made you know, 10 years or so after Scarface, and you can kind of see the, the parallels. It's almost like a mirror version yeah. of, of that film and that character. So it'd be a little bit like, I don't know, Christian Bale coming out and playing another stoic superhero, you know, um, and, you know, you're going, well, didn't you already do this? Yeah, kind of. Or, or I, I don't know, just the Scarface versus Carlito. I don't know. It's kind of the the flip side of the coin of the same character. It's like, whereas... He has, Carlito has these rules and he is desperately trying to um, be, you know, listen to his better angels. Scarface is almost like, nah, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> every, every possible opportunity, he's going to go the opposite direction. Almost like Christian Bale coming back into the DCEU as the Joker. You know, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, sort of playing a mirror image of a character he played before. Yeah. Maybe he's playing Captain Boomerang or something. Um, 
Actually, he, uh, would, he would make uh, a really good hush. I don't know who that is. Um, but anyway, we're not talking about superhero films. We do that all the fucking time, and and, yes. and, and I'm sure we'll do it again later. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I think it's fair to say that I was really, I'm really, it's a really good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Did you, a, out of 10? I would give this probably a high seven to a low eight. We don't normally do the score thing, but it is the first time George has seen it, so we give you yeah. an indication. It's available on all your rental services, your Google Plays, your YouTubes, the Apples, that kind of okay. thing. It's not on any streaming services if you're subscribed to any, but um, you can still at least watch it in some legal fashion, unlike some of the movies that we uh, we follow. Um, just a couple of quick things I'll polish off. I hate Joan Leguizamo. I think he's a, I can't stand him as an actor. Like I, I think I think the first film I saw him in was Spawn. I think I've told the story of Spawn before, uh, and that's a film I absolutely despise. I think it's one of the few films I walked out of. I'm very excited to see what Todd McFarlane does with his reboot, though. That'll be interesting. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sneer of dis- disdain. Because he has been talking up his um, Spawn movie since before the the first Spawn movie came out, and it never gets anywhere. It is one of the poster childs for development hell movies. Development hell. Okay, well, we've got Jeremy Renner attached here and Jamie Foxx. So. so he's had people attached before, yeah, and this is a world. It's not going to get anything happening yet. Anyway, but um, he was a ter- he, he really annoyed me in that film. He annoyed me in Super Mario Bros. He annoys me in most things, but I thought he was actually quite menacing in this, which is a different style for him. He doesn't usually sort of maybe play as the annoying character or a comic relief character. Yeah. Or I mean, even in something like Romeo and Juliet, which he was in, of course he played um, Tybalt. Um, a, in you know, he probably wasn't. He was again. He was sort of antagonistic, but I wouldn't say he was menacing. Yeah. Um, but though he was very good in that as well, so I, I really respected his performance. Since I thought he, he did a lot with not much. Mm. Um, and Louis Guzman, I thought, was a surprising uh, turn up here in the sense he's sort of better known in our world today as his, sort of his comic mm. uh, comic roles. Um, which I'm not looking at he's best known for Traffic, Boogie Nights, Count of Monte Cristo, and Punch Drunk Love. None of those are straight ahead comedies, but I think of him as a comedic actor. Yeah. Also, uh, yeah. I don't know why, but, but um, see, I thought he, he... Always, he always brings something, a little something to, to every role that he does. Uh, his character in Punch Drunk Love, I really love him because he's this very run of the mill guy who just so happens to work with Barry, um, Adam Sandler's character. But there's that he's every time he talks to Barry about it, like, why are we getting all these um, yogurt pots and stuff? It's like, I want to help my friend. I'm concerned, but I'm not going to pull him up on it. There's that geniality to it versus um, his, like this character where he again seems to be this very emotionally open guy who's like, I want to latch onto someone and really believe in this person. And it's kind of a little heartbreaking how it, how it ends for, for him at the end. And he's, He's just an interesting character. I guess so looking at his filmography here, I've got no idea why I think he does comic stuff because <laughs> really he actually doesn't do – it must be wrong. I don't know, but he's done comic stuff. Like Beverly yes, Hills he Chihuahua or something. But he was also in stuff like Oz, 
which wasn't funny. Um, yeah. It was in, uh, and he'd done quite a bit of stuff with PT and Paul Thomas Anderson and yeah. other things. So, um, yeah, I don't know why I think that I have to apologize to him in advance, but he was, I think he was really impressive in, again, a fairly small role in this film, um, showing some real range. Now, if you've got nothing else to say, I want to. You've got two because I had two, so you're taking us. Oh, I haven't planned for that at all. Um, oh, so I just play me out, Johnny. Um, well, I did I mean, two. I've got, got a lot of um, people to choose from. Go. I, I would just like to pop a hat in there and go, Can we please go to Heat? <laughs> Maybe you want to watch Heat after watching his film, but you can take it somewhere more obscure if you like. Wow. Um, <laughs> see, now. I do have a very soft spot for heat. I do love that movie. But at the same time, I do kind of just want an excuse to go to Eastern Promises. Because now, that's a film I've not seen, so that would be interesting. In okay, so let's do that because I watched a movie we haven't seen before. Now it's your turn. So we're going to follow Viggo Mortensen to Eastern Promises, which is directed by David Cronenberg from uh, 2007. And it's got Naomi Watts in it, who I absolutely love. Yeah. Um, it's uh, It was written by Stephen Knight, who um, he did one of your uh, favorite recent movies of Locke, Locke. with uh, Tom Hardy. He's uh, the writer behind Peaky Blinders, one of my favorite movies of the early 2000s, Dirty Pretty Things. He wrote that, which is awesome. Um, and oh, he's done a weird Christmas Carol thing for FX, but he's got an interesting, um, Stephen Knight has got an interesting style and um, Eastern Promises is uh, It's Cronenberg, it's going to be different. It could be streamed yeah. on Stan in Australia if you'd like to watch it with us, uh, so to speak. Uh, or mm -hmm. you, if you don't like that, you can rent a copy from Google Play or for YouTubes. Or you can buy yeah. a copy from Live Revamp as well if you're very keen. I'm excited. I'm excited to see this film. Because this was um, Viggo Mortensen did did a couple of kind of well a lot of the cast of Lord of the Rings finishing Lord of the Rings they did a lot of kind of anti programming for them like you look at Elijah Wood and he did a lot of kind of psychotic roles and twisted roles to kind of get away from Frodo. Um, this Didn't was work. no, not really. This kind of was one of. Um, two real successes for Viggo Mortensen after 2003's Lord of the Rings finished up. He had Hidalgo, which wasn't very good. But um, in 2005, he had A History of Violence, which is fucking awesome. Fucking and, amazing movie. Yeah. And then in 2007, he had Eastern Promises. In 2008, it's a great little um, Western movie, Apple Loser, with Ed Harris that um, I do recommend as well. He's a very fine actor, Viggo Mortensen, who we do not yeah. see enough of these days. I really really enjoy his work it's one of those guys that seems to always really put the effort in whenever he's he's cast in something and i really do appreciate that i must say and i'm not going to give anything away here but i'm super tempted to take us we've had a run of very high quality films lately mm. i'm very i'm very very i'm very tempted to take us back to the gutter oh. we started this chain with gutter tier films like streets of fire you know <laughs> Yeah, but that doesn't mean that we have to go back there. <laughs> you know, but what does our audience want? Do they want us to, to, to be 
toasting ourselves with champagne and caviar, or do we want to be eating a canned hamburger? There's enough pain and horror in this world. Someone's got to have fun. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, we'll see how we go. So anyway, uh, Easter promise next week. Yeah. Now then, um, should we um, keeping a little bit of a chain going? Um, John Leguizamo, I can see, has apparently appeared in The Mandalorian. So do you want to talk about your thoughts of Mandalorian Season 2? Ah, yes. I would just like to start by wasting my breath for a minute and strongly encouraging my co-host to take a look at The Mandalorian because you have, I think, Disney Plus as as a streaming service you subscribe to, and you've said many times you're just not interested. But Uh And that's why I'm saying I'm going to waste my breath again and tell you you want to be on board this bandwagon, I think. There's every good chance you might watch it and go, that's crap. But I don't think you I don't think if you were being honest with yourself and us, you would, because uh I posted a Facebook status after finishing the last, after last episode last night and I said, How does Disney get this so right and get everything else they've fucking put their finger in with Star Wars so bloody wrong? And controversially, I include Rogue One with that that film. Not as good as everybody said it was. It was a mess. Um, I have an answer for you for that one. Yeah. The people that are making The Mandalorian are exactly the same as us. That's it. I mean, that's essentially the answer I got from people. Is like people said two words, Favreau and Filoni. That's why you um, vibed so much with Ted, because it was, you know, Seth MacFarlane is your brother from another mother's um kind of so watching the same shit that i did basically yeah, exactly. and he kind of you know i mean I, and i think that's why i'm wasting my breath and saying if you grew up liking the original star wars trilogy i think there's a lot here to enjoy uh and it's not just fan service so anyway i like season one if, if you recall uh if you've been listening long enough to us i'm sorry um, but, you know, you might find that I, I quite like season one. It did uh, a lot of heavy lifting in the sense it did world building. It did a lot of establishing who Mando was. It did a lot of establishing what the universe he lived in was like, what was going on in that universe, where we were in our very complex and convoluted timeline now. And it was basically we had uh, a bounty hunter at Mandalorian, not the bounty hunter, not Boba Fett, who um, was tasked with um, basically uh, transporting some cargo, which turned out to be, for want of a better term, Baby Yoda, um, to some imperial, post-imperialists, you know, people who use the word for the emperor. Mm. He grows a a conscience and decides not to hand the baby over to them and hence makes himself um, a very much a wanted man by the imperials. Everybody wants their hands on this baby, uh, Baby Yoda and you know the rest of the season is about basically keeping Baby Yoda out of the hands of the, the Imperials. Uh, at the end of the season, we meet our hot potato. Sorry, it's a TV series all about the hot potato. Pretty much. I mean, look, it's not complicated. Um, it, it wasn't a complicated first season, but um, we in the last episode of the season we meet Moff Gideon, who is essentially our big bad. For the mm-hmm. season, played by really by Giancarlo Esposito. I mean, God, I mean, we said it before, he must get sick of playing bad guys, but then again, he's got to be making huge bank now. He's mm-hmm. the bad guy in Breaking Bad, he was the still the bad guy in Better Call Saul, he was the bad guy in this. He's going to be the bad guy in a new game, was um, was a lot of uh, right, yeah. Um, so 
you know, he's got to be raking the dollars in now doing his huge, huge properties. Uh, and he just does it really well. Um, he, he exudes menace in a way that I think few actors do quite as well. Anyway, so he's not a Jedi or anything. He just happens to work for the Empire, and he has a cool laser sword thing, which later find out is called the Dark Saber. That's season one. Season two um, is essentially it can be some, the plot of season two can be summed up in, in one sentence. Mando, Mando is trying to find a Jedi, Jedi, so he can hand the baby off to him. Okay. Basically, that's it. And Will you take we have my baby? Of, sorry. Will you take my baby? <laughs> this is set after Return of a Jedi, so oh, Jedi, Jedi are still a little bit thin on the ground. Mm. Um, now, um, if I have a I'll start with a, a bit of a critic, I loved it basically. Mm -hmm. It's a upshot, but a, a critical point is, uh, if I can be, this does call back to a lot of stuff. That's not the original trilogy or the prequels. But okay. I, I'm told there's a lot of stuff in here from, oh, that's so and so from the Clone Wars TV show or the comic book or this book or that book. And so it's calling back not a lot, but some of the fairly sizable characters and, and plot points here mm. refer back to characters, that particularly, I think, from the Clone Wars, which I think is the cartoon, mm. um, which I've never watched. So if you're like me and you're basing your knowledge of, of Star Wars basically off the films, um, then you, you it's going to lose some of its impact. Uh, I'm sure if I'd been a huge fan of um, of, of the Clone Wars, you'd be like, oh, that's Bo-Katana. And I know exactly who Bo-Katana is hmm. and why she's important. Here, yeah. okay. But Don't it still care. works. It still works. Now, uh, stick on the critical um, side of things. This didn't bother me, but I can see how it might bother someone. Mm. Um, actually, a lot of the episodes kind of feel like um, plots from video games. Okay. But they're kind of like, oh, well, we need to go to this place to meet this person so they can show us where the other person is. But when we meet that person, they're like, oh, I'll definitely show you where that other person is, but I need you to help me with this thing first. Oh. You know what I mean? Fetch quests. Not really fetch quests, but more like, oh, well, this horrible woman runs a town nearby and she's oppressing the villagers. We need, I need your help to take her out first. And then once you've done that, I'll help you, you know, find the Jedi on the next planet, find the next Bogothan, right? And that mm. kind of does happen a few times during the season. Like you go to planet X, meet person Y, do the job, get the intel, go to the next thing. Um, now, that could be seen. I could see how that would bother some people. Didn't bother me because, um, and I think it's the plot. And, and the overall, it has a very simple plot, like I said, one sentence. But I like the characters. I care about the characters. I want I want the characters to survive. I want to learn a bit more about them. I want to see them talking. I want to see them having conversations with people. Okay. I, I want them to do well. Which, you know, you can get away with some, you know, this isn't exactly Glengarry Glen Ross style writing here, right? But um, but you can get away with that when you write, you've created great characters and you've put the time in. And they put yeah. the time into these characters in season one. So we know who they are. We care about them. We care about their story. So when you get to season two and, you know, you're doing the same thing over a few times and I noticed it. Sorry, guys. I noticed what you were doing. Um uh, as, as long as you're doing it with characters I care about and it's still fun and exciting, that's fine with me. 
um, if you're doing fetch quests, kind of again, like you did and say, what was the last, the Rise of Skywalker or whatever the fucking thing was, they kind of they kind of did the same thing. Well, we've got to get the dagger from a place so we can incorporate, you know, you can interpret the thing. And then we get that thing and we can go hold the thing up against a Death Star. We can see where the room is and we can go get that thing. So we can plug that thing into the spaceship so we can fly to the other place, you know. It, it, oh, man, I brought it back where I started. <laughs> Actually, re re reload an old save file. Um, <laughs> they, when they did it in, in, in the film trilogy, it didn't work because they didn't care about the characters and what they were doing wasn't fun and exciting. Um, in this series, what they're doing is fun and exciting. So in episode one, for example, Mando uh, visits a, a Tatooine again and has to team up with a local marshal and a group of sand people to take on a crate dragon. If you don't know what a crate dragon is, as soon as I'm like, hmm, that sounds very familiar. Why do I know what a crate dragon is? Crate dragons were in um, Knights of the Old Republic. But actually one of the, uh, one of the actual quests right. in the game was to kill a crate dragon. I'm like... That's why I know that name. I think they mentioned in other parts of the films and and, and you know. with the member berries and stuff. So and it, it'll do little nods like that, little callbacks to stuff. You're like, ah, oh, I've played that game. I remember what that is. And so it's quite a long episode. And interestingly, the marshal in in Tatooine is wearing Boba Fett's armor. Um, and Boba Fett. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. That Boba Fett does make an appearance, and and it's wonderful. And they do it so well. Um, and I don't know that I necessarily would have been champing at the bit for a solo um, Boba Fett TV series, but I think we're getting one. So, um, Well, we're getting about a thousand different Star Wars property things coming very soon by the sounds of it. So, yep. Well, at least they put some work in and we actually spent some time with Boba Fett in this series. Um yeah, it's like I mean, I, again, the film doesn't. Sorry, the show doesn't actually stray too far from what it did in the first season. Um, it is essentially a western slash samurai story. Okay. So, why wouldn't you? It's exactly what 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 inspired George Lucas. It's your old style radio serials with bad guys shooting at good guys, and you know um, that kind of thing. It's very clear. It's not trying anything particularly complicated, but. If you do simple things really, really well, that can be beautiful. Yeah. Um, Dave Filoni's um, filmography and uh, as a producer, he's uh, produced nothing but Star Wars. As a director, he's done nothing but Star Wars with the exception of uh, some Avatar, The Last Airbender. Uh, and um, as an actor, it's all Star Wars. Uh, as a writer, it's all Star Wars. So... He seems like the Star Wars guy. It's probably not a bad place to be right now, considering how much stuff they're producing. Yeah. Um, you've got some fairly high-profile people pop up in this. You mentioned John Lugazamo. He pops up as uh, uh, as in under very heavily disguised in the first episode, and I saw his name in the credits. I'm like, hi, who was he? And like he was, oh, he's the guy from Mask On. Um, uh, you Peyton Reed of Ant Man fame directed two episodes this season, They've and had quite a. Uh quite an impressive collection of guest directors for this series, haven't they? Robert Rodriguez directs one of the episodes as well, which is actually quite, you can tell it's Rodriguez once you know it's him, because it's quite, it's about as brutal as yeah. it gets, as you, can, <laughs> as you can get, you know, for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard directs one, which is interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And Carl Weathers, um, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, Apollo Creed himself, directs one of the episodes. And, of uh, and that, he does too. 
Sorry? Taika Waititi is that? I think Taika did one in season one. I think he's getting his own movie or show now um, in Star Wars. Uh, and I guess the other thing I'd like, I mean, I'm just telling you, if you're a star, if you're an old school Star Wars fan, just watch it. Just watch it. Please just watch it. Each show episode is about 30, 40 minutes, usually some are a little longer, which makes them really nice and bite-sized. But don't overstay their welcome, which, again, is another real strength. If you're telling a fairly simplistic story, you don't need two and a half hours a la Rise of Skywalker to do it. Mm-hmm. Tell it, get in, tell your story, get the fuck out, which is what they do very nicely here. But um, we've talked before about Kathleen Kennedy and her sort of, well, I would say it's fairly obvious dedication to identity politics in her films. I mean, it's pretty in your face. Like, you know, she goes around with a T-shirt that says the force is female, which, fine, whatever, right? If you're going to do it, do it well. She didn't. Um, but interestingly, there's a, there are a number of female characters. In season one, I talked about Cara Dune, mm-hmm. um, played by the actress whose name escapes me. Hey, time. There we go. Uh, and she's got herself into a little bit of trouble on Twitter lately. Um, but I won't go into that. I'm not, but um, we also have um, uh, Fennec Shan, who is a carryover from season one, played by Ming Na Wen, probably best known for playing Chun Li in Street Fighter. Oh yeah, she did, um, <laughs> um, and and a couple of um, female uh, Mandalorian characters. Um, Bo Katana mm-hmm. is one of them, and Koska, um, played by Sasha Banks, WWE's Sasha Banks. Uh, um, really? Um, All right. And um, uh, under her actual name, but not her. But um, visit, there is a in the final episode, and unfortunately, I had the final episode spoiled for me. Because um, it was all over Facebook that what happened in the final episode. So on the off chance you one day sit down and watch it, I'm not going to spoil it for you in case you don't know. Um, but there is a scene where they, all those female characters need to work together to basically uh, do a distraction. for It's a distraction to let Mando try and do what he needs to do. So they're fighting off wave after wave of stormtroopers, and they are kicking ass. Mm-hmm. And it stopped, and it happens actually a number of times through a film, through, sorry, through the show, where these female characters are sort of doing that team up thing a little bit and working and basically kicking ass and taking names. Mm-hmm. I stop for a moment and go, see, this is how it's done. This is how it's done. If you really want to tell, you want, I mean, I, I 100% agree with having strong female characters in films and, and TV shows, and, I, and especially in the science fiction realm. And we've talked before, representation matters. Yes. You, know, you and I, we're white, straight guys. And everybody on our TV screen looked like us growing up. All yep. Indiana Jones, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, they're all fucking white, straight male. So it's impossible for us to know what it's really like to be a little girl watching Star Wars or reading comic books and not really seeing anyone who looks like you. Yeah. Um, so it's really important for those people to be able to look up. And that's why I've really enjoyed the first Wonder Woman film. I mean, I know she's white, sort of. <laughs> but, you know, again, little girls have a superhero to look up for, and that's important for them. Mm. Um, and it's important, that, you know, in science fiction as well. And that's probably what they're sort of trying to do, I guess, with, you know, uh, Ray. And they, they kind of hold it off in the first one, but then they just chuck the bed after that. With this one, you've got four kick-ass female Star Wars characters who are just cutting sick, saving Mando's ass time and again. And just ripping through stormtroopers, but at no point in time is the TV show rubbing your face in it, going, "Look, girl power, look at them, girl power," or going, 
look how fucking smart these women, powerful these women are compared to the stupid men. Um, I mean, I'm not offended by that. I just think it's lazy. Yeah. And it's annoying. And I'm like, and obvious and tactless. Like, I know exactly what you'll be. Or if I look at the, um, I think we complained about it when it happened, the, uh, the, the Endgame, Avengers Endgame, is that scene in the battle at the oh. end where um, all the female characters come together. She's not alone. Um, yeah. And they all do that. They all just happen to come off from wherever they are in the battlefield just so they can, you know, stand aside, you know, because cut them up. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, come on, guys. Don't be that obvious about it. You don't need to announce it. It's lazy. And Especially I really in that particular scenario, they've already talked that apparently every single one of them has got an earpiece and they can talk to each other, no problem. They could have very easily had that unification of the female superheroes just actually still having them already fighting and just going, okay, priority, let's go over there. It would have made it far more empowering for them, so like weighing up the balances, it would have given them the character choice. Anyway. <clears throat> All right, I don't want to go too down that rabbit hole again. I'm not a men's rights activist. I'm seriously not. I'm just telling you if you, and I've, I think it's insulting to women. I think it's it's tokenism. It's yeah. window dressing. It's also going, here's your fucking Enjoy it. When we said before, it's very, it's not well, it's easy, but you can create strong female characters without, without pandering. And yeah. this TV show 100% pulls it off where it's not wagging its politics in its face. It's not slapping you upside the head going, look how awesome these women are. They're just too busy being awesome. And you're too busy enjoying the show but to, to actually enjoying the action and the story to go, huh, I even stop it a minute and go, whoa, isn't it really cool to see all these female characters going out and they've all got individual, mostly individual sort of um, personalities and stories and motivations and they're doing their thing and they're kicking ass and they're being awesome. They look awesome. They are awesome. But I don't feel like I'm being pandered to. I don't, I mean, you know, I don't feel like if, if women are being pandered to. I don't feel like I'm being, you know, um, criticized because, like I said, I didn't ask to be born a white man, but I, I recognize my privilege. Um, but I, I don't feel, anyway, it didn't feel tacked on and it didn't feel deliberate. Uh, it, well, it probably was. And that's the real art of it, isn't it? To do something like that and to slot it in so it felt natural. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I feel like, you know, this if film can do shit like that. And like I said, they're, they're killing stormtroopers and saving people. And, you know, they are almost the stars of the breakout stars of a show this season. Hmm. But at the same time, I don't see people criticizing it the way they did the Star Wars, the, the, the sequel trilogy, because it's not being shoved down your throat. Hmm. Um, in the same way, it felt natural. So I'm sorry I didn't mean to go on about that so much, but it really was obvious to me, and I'm just like, ah, this is how you do it, guys. Marvel guys, go down to the Hall of Mirrors, take a good hard look at yourself, go sit down for half an hour with Favreau and Filoni and watch and just see how you write strong female characters without being obvious and pandering. Um, just said, it's there's a bit of fan service in here, so to cut back to away from the politics for a minute. Um, it, it, a lot, I mean, some people want to call it fan service, but it, it really worked for me. I I was like, ah, this is what I wanted from the Star Wars sequels. And if these guys had been in charge of the Star Wars sequels, these would be billion-dollar properties, every single one of them, multi-billion-dollar properties. These, these films would be, those sequels would have knocked it out of the park. You know, I just hope that they very slowly edge Kathleen Kennedy towards the exit. 
and uh, after her Leslie Headland series and whatever that fucking one that Patty Jenkins is doing is done and get these guys into the driver's seat with whatever it is they choose to do next. I don't know about 500 different series, but, geez, this one's good. Uh, I, I'll i get around to it, but, man, I have basically... You've got, a, you've got a treat waiting for you. You've got a real treat. Mm, I've got a 9.8 some of these episodes. Like, I mean, come on, you know, you're already paying for the service. No, I'm not. <laughs> Oh, you can't it. it because of a sister. I do not use it because I will not support Disney anymore. But if you, yeah, yeah, fair enough. We'll download it then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if I won't miss it. One last, one last note. Mm. Um, Pedro Pascal, really good in this. Um, gets a little bit of FaceTime now. Okay. Well, uh, okay. And now once you see it, you're like, oh, I can see why they cast him as Max Lord. Um, he was really good in this. Okay, there you go. Right. Gonna be sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> Tell me about Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Well, for those of you who don't know, Twin Peaks is one of the arguably most iconic um, TV series of all time um, because of a multitude of things. It was one of the most uh mainstream surrealist inspired tv shows um it was kind of an early like it's now the thing for established well-known directors to go all right i'm going to make a tv show and this is going to be my thing that i'm going to create and it's going to be weird and wonderful and everything you like in all of my movies this is david lynch um and Carl mclaughlin coming together for a whodunit with a supernatural spin to it. Um, the original series has uh, an idiosyncratic FBI agent, that's Carl McLaughlin character, uh, investigates the murder of a young woman in the even more idiosyncratic town of Twin Peaks. And season one and two were 1990-1991. And then 25 years later, we finally got season three. And it continues the story. And my God, I loved it. Oh, so good. So, so good. Um, season one is just sublime. It is, there's, there's, there's slight elements of um, that kind of X-Files-y kind of feel to it because there is this, because of that surreal element to it and the, stranger than fiction lifestyle and the way that they portray all of the characters like um carl mclaughlin's character has been um his character's name is dale cooper he has been parodied so much now it's like mm, damn fine coffee and talking about pie and things like that it's all these weird little bits and they use silence um and just very deadpan comedy and things and it's shot like a, a telenovela from Spain or something like that. It really is. And one thing I, I don't know if you picked it up is that everybody there's constant references in the show to an in-show soap opera that people watch. Yes. And basically, after watching a season, I'm like, okay, Twin Peaks is the soap opera that they're all watching on a TV in the show. It's the show within the show is the show. Yes, exactly. And it's there's so many wonderfully detailed um, 
like little ins and self-referential jokes and things like that. It is phenomenally written. And season two takes it on the, it embraces more of the supernatural side of things, um, but you don't lose any of the, the real character development that you've had through the first ones. Every single character, you, I felt like I, at the very least, enjoyed if I didn't love them. And that is my one criticism for season three, is we get the return of FBI agent Dale Cooper, but not really, because of shit that he uh, experiences, he's not the same Dale Cooper. And that is a shame because I absolutely love the character of Dale Cooper in the first two series. And I just wanted more of that character. What I got was a masterclass from Carl McLaughlin playing two characters and being phenomenal with both of them. Neither of them at all like Dale Cooper. Um, and yet it's still phenomenal. And there's still that very strong kind of feel to it. It loses a little bit of that kind of soap opera within a soap opera kind of attitude. Part of that is because the technology and the way that TV shows and miniseries and like the, this is a, a miniseries spectacular as Showtime uh, advertised it. Um, the way that they are filmed is very different. The fact that um, it looks beautiful it is stunningly shot it's um just pixel perfect amazing vistas going from las vegas to twin peaks and everything in between it is beautiful to watch the um and they um embrace a lot more of the stuff that goes on in um the movie uh, fire walk with me um and it does weird shit that you just don't see on mainstream TV and it's so good so refreshing it is fucking phenomenal and the fact that David Lynch he was the guy who directed the whole of season three he was overseeing it it was his baby to to do with they they worked amazingly well with a 25 year gap how many um directors or you know, creative teams are able to pick up where they left off so wonderfully. It's rare. It's very rare. You just look at what we were talking about before, Star Wars. The original trilogy versus the prequel trilogy, it wasn't the same thing, but it was the same production group, the same same people in control. And then going from the prequel trilogy to the sequel sequel series, again, it's, you know, they, they couldn't even do it after 10 or 15 years. And this is 25 years. And they managed to bring back all of these wonderful characters and some of them were just but there were sequences in it that had nothing to do at all with the story and yet it's just a continuation of these characters lives and it was wonderful and the great sort of um sort of synergy that like at the end of the actual season two yeah. laura Palmer whispers in someone's ear see you in 25 years yes and then 25 years like exactly 25 years later there was the new season yeah, it's, I mean, either that is just unfathom, unfathomable planning or they went, oh, we left it on a cliffhanger. Can we do anything with that? Oh, actually, it turns out we can. <laughs> in this case, it might have worked in their advantage to the fact that nothing original gets made anymore and yeah. that nothing without a brand name gets made anymore. And so, I mean, I, I questioned it in the sense of sort of like, 
does Twin Peaks have a lot of brand recognition anymore? I mean, our generation, I mean, I don't know, do you remember it being on TV when you were young? It was something that I never watched when I was young, but I remember it. I remember the adults and the older kids talking about it and going, oh, did you see that? It was really weird, wasn't it? And I've been here, it's like, I don't even know when it was on TV. Yeah. You might have been probably a little, I was 12, 13 when it came out. And so probably a little young for that kind of tally. Yeah. But I remember the song because it was the famous Falling by Julie Cruz was a really yeah. big hit. I, I, he was here, I assume, um, in the UK as well. And so it was kind of, there was a lot of buzz and a lot of hype around the show when yeah. it came out. But I was a little surprised that it still had any kind of cachet outside of hipsters um, yeah. 25 years later. Have I told you my Twin Peaks story about Las Vegas? No. A uh, friend of the show, Patria, and I uh, were in Las Vegas walking around. Have you been to Vegas? No. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very hot place. It's in the middle of a desert and everything's really far away from everything else. And we're walking around. It was hot. We were tired. We walked into a bar um, for a drink. And we were talking uh, with the waitress about, while well, she got our drinks, about the bar we just passed around the corner. There was this bar around the corner called Twin Peaks. They had, like, a um, tartan windows and, like, a mountain theme. Mm. And I was like, we're looking at each other going, this is 2013. So I'm like, why would anybody make a bar themed after a freaking David Lynch TV show from 20 bloody years ago? And we're talking to the girl going, what's up with Twin Peaks? Was anybody with sort of a random TV show to theme at the bar after? He goes, oh, well, they just call it Twin Peaks because all the girls who work there have big boobs. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> that makes a little bit more sense. And then uh, it, that but was she 2013 had, and then 2017, this series comes out and there's a lot had, of it in Vegas. She had no idea what we were talking about. She was like 19, had never heard of a TV show. And she thought it was bizarre that she had no idea. It was like, it was a TV show back in the nineties directed by David Lynch. And she's like, Oh, I don't know who that is. Um, so she was very confused about the whole situation. But it was funny. Um, I, I really enjoyed season one of this when I watched it. Like I churned through it. Mm. I didn't like season two. I don't think David Lynch liked season two from what I recall here. I don't think he really wanted to do it. At the time, um, I think it was kind of a one and done kind of thing for him initially. Um, but the ratings of this were so huge. Mm. Um, but what was the genius of this to me is it was a Trojan horse of a TV show. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, if you tried to sell this as a David Lynch, I mean, I guess he wasn't a household name exactly, but yeah. the kind of thing he normally made, who fucking way he was getting the show made? And if it was, no one was watching it, you know, Log Lady and, you know, the. <laughs> what but what he basically did was he he hid the lynchiness inside a fairly traditional murder mystery to start with at least who killed laura palmer and that yeah. was the marketing campaign who killed laura palmer yeah. um and you know as the longer it got and sort of you know the further down that road of season you got out it broke it sort of came out of its chrysalis yeah. the, Davey, the bizarre davy lynchian monstrosity that it was came out of its chrysalis and you're like hang on a second we're not even talking about Laura Palmer anymore. What the fuck is going on? Yeah, Laura uh, Palmer just so kind of gets slowly sidelined, like, line. Yeah, vaguely there occasionally. Um, but like you were like, okay, I've got no idea what's going on anymore, but I like it. Yeah, and that was when it sort of started to come around to me. I'm like, this show is the soap opera, and I think that's fucking brilliant. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's the fact that he kind of snuck this one in to mainstream 
is the mainstream zeitgeist mm. through that choking horse approach. It's absolutely outstanding. Um, uh, and yeah, if you, if you haven't watched it, it's on one of the streaming services, right? On Stan, yeah, all of it. Um, I would recommend the first season. If you really, really enjoy that, you'll probably enjoy the second season. Uh, are you going to hang in there and maybe watch Firewalk with me now? I will do, but um, I'm taking a bit of a breather because there's only so much surrealism that I can take in, a, you know, a two-week period. And from everything that I've seen of Firewalk With Me, it goes really surreal. It's, and it's a brain tweezer. It's a brain yeah. tweezer. On it. the, last, the last two or three episodes of season three of Twin Peaks go really weird like there's one episode where there's hardly any speech and it's just lots of sort of like industrial noise and black and flashing and potentially <laughs> going through the cosmos and all sorts of weird stuff like okay and now we've got what what what's this it's a basically a talking teapot that's what <laughs> my, my like i say the the two big gripes that i have for season three are I would love to see more of the original Dale Cooper because he was so kind of um, so good and honest and nice and amenable. And he was just a joy to watch. And he was really smart. He was able to kind of pick things up. Um, I just wanted that. That's just a personal thing. But I understand the narrative point of it. And they did it really well. The other thing is they left it on a cliffhanger. And it's like, oh, no. <laughs> It's so frustrating. Maybe I want to make another twenty-five years. He'd probably be dead by then, but maybe he can still write the script and hand it off to someone. I don't know. Yeah, um, well, I, I would nominate my brother to to do it. He does surreal fairly well. That would be quite a coup. <laughs> um, I'm not. Are you? You're normally a big fan of Lynch's stuff. I always find myself liking it more than I feel I would. So, like, I I still actually like his version of Dune, in spite of so many things wrong with it. I, I still kind of appreciate what he does. Elephant Man is amazing. Eraserhead is amazing. Um, Blue Velvet is fucking amazing beyond belief. I even like Mulholland Drive. It's that there's always I always find some really interesting things at work in his stuff. And it's like, yeah, this is cool. And to go through three seasons of Twi uh, Twin Peaks was just heaven <laughs> i i'm a lot more some of it i absolutely adore mm. but the other things like i remember lost highway i walked out of that i had no idea what was going on yeah, um, i haven't watched that so it may not be the best thing he's ever done but mm. yeah um it's an acquired taste but i like the fact that he pushes the boundaries yeah holy shit I didn't realize that David Lynch directed the PlayStation 2 adverts for the third place, but it totally makes sense. I remember that advert. It was really weird and fucked up. And there was, I think there was a duck. It was, oh, and no, there was, there was a, a weird kind of like a computerized deformed uh, woman with huge eyes. And she's like, welcome to the third place, even though it was advertising PlayStation 2. I, and they never elaborated where their first and second places were. It makes sense that it's David Lynch. <laughs> he is, um, yeah, he's different. Mm. Um, if you haven't ever seen Inland Empire, mm. my goodness, that might be the most terrifying thing I've ever seen, even though I've got no idea what it's about. 
Um, it's very clear. It says here, as an actress begins to adopt the persona of a character in a film, her world becomes nightmarish and surreal. There you go. <laughs> uh yeah and there are talking rabbits and stuff in it it's yeah not it's bizarre but um, the, the other thing that i do really appreciate for inland empire is how much of a showcase it is for karma glockin as an actor because he is fucking brilliant and he works very well with um with david lynch yes he does but particularly in season three where he has got those two character personas he is legitimately scary in one of those he's just quite reserved and um he's made up to kind of be weather worn and he just looks like the kind of guy that has seen shit done shit that will make you cry just because you're thinking about it you, he doesn't need to tell you any of it he, he's just gonna make you cry and it's it's awesome he's i just think um but he, he is partially David Lynch is partially responsible for his casting mm. in um, in uh, Showgirls, so we should all be mm. grateful for that because what a role that was. Um, um, shall we? Shall we? Have you got anything more, or shall we move on to our last oh, yeah. topic? That's it. Let's go to the last topic. I'd say, say cool. I'm 100 percent behind George's, but if you haven't seen Twin Peaks, you're missing out. It's awesome TV. You you have never seen anything like it, and that's a good thing. If you, um, if you don't like the first two episodes of season one, don't stick around because it just gets more from there. Yeah. It, if you if you like Friends, weird. don't watch it. Yeah. If you um, like weird, watch it. Yeah. Um, totally Under Control is a film I watched last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a documentary by, I think, a very prolific documentary maker, Alex Gibney. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked about some of his stuff on the show before. He won an Oscar for Enron, the smartest room in the guy, uh, smartest guys in the room. He directed the Going Clear, Scientology, and the Prison of Belief documentary. Uh, Taxi to the Dark Side, the Armstrong Lie, uh, Out for Blood, the Theranos documentary, um, which is great as well. By the way, if you like a documentary, he directed one of the episodes of the Looming Tower. Um, uh, zero days he's he's really uh a very busy man but um last year he, he released at least two films and a tv show uh tv show coming soon review coming soon called agents of chaos but he directed this a uh, uh, documentary called totally under control um and it is an in-depth look at how the united states government handled the response to the COVID 19 outbreak during the early months of the pandemic, which is interesting. We, talk, we kind of started here, like we're talking about when it, when the times get precedented and you're like, it was a year ago. So we've come that far down the line. We're starting to get documentaries about the start of the pandemic. So that's how far from the start of the pandemic we are. Um, and Alex Skimmy is actually, they do, they shot all this while lockdown was on in the States last year, whatever form lockdown took over there. And they actually had to invent some fairly innovative and interesting new ways to film the participants, um, which they actually highlight from a technical perspective. But um, they talk to any number of different politicians and health experts to really sort of get under the covers and go, what was the United States doing uh, at the time a pandemic started? Um, And we sort of noted again at the start of a show, they haven't done very well. Over 400,000 Americans have died of this now. Um, They're not the worst in the world, but they're, yeah, a long way short of the best. Um, 
And it's unsurprisingly an absolutely brutal skewering of, of how the United States government uh, responded to this and mainly how Donald Trump responded to this. Um, I don't know that he's done anything criminal in this particular instance. There are many other instances to pick from. Um, but I don't think any fair-minded person, and I am by no means that because I can't stand the man, but I don't think a fair person can look at the evidence that Alex Gibney racks up in his documentary um, could come away with any other uh, impression other than he's guilty of a murder of hundreds of thousands of his own countrymen. That's basically it. Uh, essentially, the thesis of a film is that Donald Trump saw the economy, the United States economy, and its strength as his main battering ram for re-election, if that makes sense. Like, we're mm -hmm. going to go into this election that happened last November and going to go, hey, our economy, the economy apparently was doing quite well over there. Is That was going to be what got him re-elected. He was going to lean on that because I guess he was smart enough or had enough now to realise that he's a repugnant individual who most people don't like personally. Right. But as long as the economy is strong, they'll put up with him, right? Yeah. Um, and so seeing that as his main focus on re into getting re-elected, he did the sums, or at least he was smart enough to listen to the people who were doing the sums for him, but any kind of the, the required response to control COVID-19 that we saw here in Australia involved a fairly severe lockdown. Mm. Um, we had it for what? Six two months? months two, six months, two weeks? Six months, six months, six weeks, two months back in like March, April through to early May. Um, and it kicked our economy in the ass. We're our Australian economy went back in a recession. You yeah. can test them at first hand what that effect it had on your your life um uh, but and so trump has sort of done the sums here and said he's listening to the advice what we need to do to control COVID 19 is to basically institute a kind of lockdown nationwide lockdown he didn't necessarily have that power to do it himself but he could have encouraged it and assisted the states in doing it by you know providing uh stimulus packages a little bit like we did in australia with JobKeeper. He hmm. could have tried, tried to do something similar to that. But he figured he's, he sort of made a, a, a risk-reward sort of equation and gone, if I do this, that's going to kill the economy. It's going to kick the economy in the ass, and then there it's going to completely cut off at the knees his main focus, uh, his main message for re-election, the, the strong economy. The no strong economy, he's basically gone, I think there's a good chance I'm going to lose this election. So... The thesis of the film is he chose to downplay, minimise and ignore the seriousness of this pandemic in the hopes of keeping the economy strong enough to get him re-elected. Mm. So if you ignore, and I, listen, I, I, look, I, I come with a pre-existing bias, I hate him, but I, I don't know how you can deny the amount of evidence that, that, that Gibney has rocked up, racked up from these people. Mm. Uh, the, the stunning incompetence and callous, you know, uh, ignorance of the people at the top, uh, and this leads on. It's a sort of these, and it is not just. Um, and these have lingering effects. So Trump's cult, and I do use that word advisedly. It is a cult of people who politicise wearing a mask. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously we've got our rare idiots here in Australia. My freedom, um, yeah. but they are rare. 
and I no. think they are encouraged by someone like Trump as well. So no. all he really had to do, he could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives by coming out on day one of it and going, look, it's pretty serious. I think we should, at the very least we should be wearing masks. Uh-huh. And every time he was seen in public after that, a little bit like what Biden did, he was wearing a mask. He could have sold the fucking Make America Great Again mask like he did eventually, made a shit ton of money, which is what he's mainly interested in. Yeah. Um, he saved lives, made money, and who knows, maybe if he'd handled it a little bit more responsibly, he might have still been re-elected. He didn't lose by that much. Um, so it's it's mainly talking heads, people mm-hmm. authority. It's kind of depressing, probably more depressing if you're an American. It kind of made me feel good um, because I'm like, thank God I'm not in the United States. I do worry about my friends over there, but yeah. um, can't really do much about that, especially with Trump supporters. Yeah. Um, so he's <laughs> 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 a little bit, I'm sure if you're an actual American, you're probably going to find it a little bit depressing that, that, that your leaders failed you so badly. And in this case, I don't think it was your state leaders. I think it was the federal government in mainly. And in that fairness, that's how it is. The president does kind of set the tone for the country. And as I said, he didn't have to do a whole lot. He just could have come out, wore a mask, said this is real, said this is serious, not downplayed it, not made gags about how oh, maybe it's fake, which he kind of played footsie with for a little while, but maybe it's just the flu. You know, um, he, if he'd taken this, if he'd done the bare minimum, just taking this seriously, worn a mask mm-hmm. and people take, listen to the health experts on this one, he could have yeah. saved so many lives. But when you stop and consider who this man is, obviously that was never going to happen. Um, he met an enemy he couldn't browbeat into submission and the whole country. People. Sorry. He's exactly his country, his own countrymen, the people who he was paid to protect and, and help uh, and serve have have failed as a result. And now imagine considering it affects mainly older people and people who are a great deal of those people who died are probably people who voted for him. Um, and he's completely shameless about the whole thing. So, look, I mean, I enjoy giving these documentaries. They're well-crafted, well-put-together. They're nice to look at. Um, they're well-paced. Um, if you're like me, this is probably not going to tell you anything you didn't already suspect, but uh, at the very least, I guess you can walk away from this film with a a deeper sense of confidence, understanding that that what has happened in that country is and remains a crime. Maybe yeah. not the kind of crime you can charge somebody with, but it's criminal what happened there. Um, and uh, it's a cautionary tale. Don't elect fuckwits. What you, you, I kind of hope that that would be the case, but Boris Johnson still in power. It's a muppet. He's a uh, strategically shaved muppet. And I mean, I think and I'm, this is based, it's not a documentary, this is purely a me thing, is that the only reason we have got away from this so far so good is because Scott Morrison, our fuckwit Prime Minister, doesn't have direct control over a response to this. Our mm. state premiers do. And somehow they all turn out to be reasonably competent at this kind of thing. So um, if we left it to our federal government, wretchedly incompetent federal government, I'm sure we would be looking a little bit more like what the UK looks like right now. Oh, God, um, and that's, that's not good. Not and it, only is it the, the COVID stuff, but of course, they're now feeling the effects of Brexit. And people, some people are kind of going, what? I, I'm having to do more paperwork and it's costing me more to send things and receive things from Europe? Doi. 
Well, I mean, I, I recall when I was in Europe last that I was a little bit annoyed that as an Australian, who I guess was part of Commonwealth, going into the UK, I there's the U, EU line and then there's the fuck off and everyone else line. And yeah. we had to stand in the fuck off and everyone else line. I'm like, yeah, I kind of felt like, you know, you know, we fought, we, we, our Australian troops died for your fucking country in two, for a right. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can fuck off over there, right? Like, and now I guess the uh, the Brits, when they go to their holiday house in Spain, they're going to be standing in the other line instead of the nice, fast EU line. Um, so, yeah, welcome to our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. Uh, it's going to be weird as and when I go back. You got still a British passport? Yeah. Because you're only a permanent citizen, right? Um, oh, yeah, permanent okay. resident. Citizenship in Australia, this, this country is expensive, just, right? Huh? It's expensive, right? Yeah, it's like eight thousand dollars or something. And like, and then you have to vote. You don't want to vote. I don't want to vote. I don't vote in the UK. I'm not going to vote here. <laughs> yeah, if you're a permanent resident, you can get away with that shit. But um, yeah, I, um, and yeah. <laughs> so but yeah, you, you at least you'll um, imagine there'll be a special line for UK passport holders. Um, I'd certainly hope so, unless I go, nah, we fucked it up so bad, we actually even deleted that line. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's, a very minor, it's a minor complaint. It was just like, you know, the EU line was like, in like that. The, the, the plebeian, everyone, not the EU line, took about 10 minutes. I'm like, well, That's it. Yeah. I, I, rem- I remember traveling to and from Europe for holidays and stuff like that, and it was so nice just kind of go, just basically wave my passport. People say like, yes, yes. Yes, th- this is worth more than gold, and just walk through. <laughs> it was great, but now it's you know what. And I think it's oh, why oh, most Australians who've been to Europe in the in the UK kind of that's probably the main reason is the passport line and the fast passport line. That's probably the main reason most Australians were like, "Why would you want to leave Europe? You've yeah. got the fast passport line. <laughs> None of the trade benefits. They go, like, but passport lines. That's the <laughs> thing. And like that's why most Australians were like, "What? They want to leave? Why?" They get in really fast when they go to Paris. But that's the the funny thing is all the people who are complaining are all people who have voted to leave. It's like, well, what did you think you were voting on then? I don't know. The story in the Guardian recently about people in Kent, I think, hmm. um, and they built a giant parking a truck parking lot there, basically for all the lorries that go back and forth to Europe with all the stuff, and they because of an extra time they're going to take to get over past the border now yeah. they kind of had to have a staging area for them and these truck drivers um they set up this area but they didn't set up any uh shall we say porta potties mm-hmm. um so these truck drivers are kind of like peeing in the bottles and chucking it out the window and so apparently the whole area kind of has a pretty distinctive smell now um yeah. and all these people in kent were like oh i like going out and fiddling around in my garden but the whole area smells like urine now <laughs> And they're like, so did you vote for Brexit? Yes, of course I voted for Brexit. You're like, well, maybe you should have stopped them. I mean, I guess maybe you couldn't foresee people throwing bottles of piss out inside your house, but, yeah, you know, but careful yeah, what you wish for. Yep, 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 yep. Do you learn nothing from Wonder Woman 84? At least they'll be able to, so like that area, once the, the lorries and things have cleared, it'll be ripe for planting lemon trees. There we go. It's a, it's a lemonade out of lemons. There we go. <laughs> On a such a, a, a cheerful and uplifting note, like people urinating in trucks, probably time to call it a night. 
I think so. I think so. Um, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening along. We didn't have anyone uh, offering to, to give us money this time, but uh, you know what? I probably wouldn't necessarily do that either. I mean, that's the first and only time that's happened in the last seven years. So, I mean. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but um, we obviously talked about Carlito's way. Um, next week, we are going to be going on to uh, Eastern Promises, care of Viggo Mortensen. Travis talked about The Mandalorian Season 2. I talked about Twin Peaks Seasons 1, 2, and 3. We just finished wrapping up on Totally Under Control, new documentary, and random um, Brexit P. So, pretty yeah. much. Um, yeah, if you want to follow along with what we're going to talk about next week, I'm going to be talking about Death to 2020, the new Charlie Brooker product on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you've got the Foxtel, um, the new Alex Gibney series, Aids of Chaos. So, like I said, he had a busy 2020. If you haven't had your feel of me rabbiting on about documentaries, we'll talk a little about Aids of Chaos. Well, legally available on Foxtel. I am going to session the Nicolas Cage series on Netflix all about swearing. So um, we'll uh, we'll have some interesting stuff <laughs> next week. And it says if you want to watch it, you know, and I enjoy that when I listen to podcasts. I go, I'll actually download the podcast when they're talking about the show or a film I've actually seen, so I can yeah. I can actually follow along. And go, oh yeah, I like that bit too. So feel free to do that yeah. um, next week. Drop your comments. Hit up the Facebook page. Give George money. All the good things. Give give us money just to cover the costs. Uh, but yeah, please like us on uh, Facebook, YouTube, um, Twitch. Follow us. It helps with more exposure for everyone. Even if you do just listen to the podcast, go over there. Just um, give us a like, give us a follow, and uh, then you can go back to just uh, doing it on your st- um, standard podcast services. We would really, really appreciate that. On that note, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. We are a weekly podcast every Wednesday at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you'd like to follow along live, please go to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain, where you can actually also donate to us, as well as watching us live on youtube.com slash friedbrainproductions or facebook.com slash friedbrainproductions. Thank you, and see you next time. Bye-bye.